like that. It's a doctrine that you don't hear as frequently in, in church cultures. It's something that you don't really talk about, certainly you don't preach about, in some, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, in some uh, church cultures. And we want to understand that if you don't have a doctrine of sin, then you really don't have a doctrine of sanctification, at least not a practical application of it. You have more of a theoretical or just simply a theological without application. So with that, we're again in part two. This is a study by Paul Tripp, and it's titled, Do You Believe? 12 Historic Doctrines to Change Your Everyday Life. Let's go ahead and get into our, our time, and uh, Mark has the mic, and he can make sure that we get around. We've only got, I think, three questions. There's nothing too challenging in our questions. It's more kind of examples or looking back in our own life and, and how it applied kind of questions, so we should have an enjoyable time today. Let's go ahead and start. Sin blinds. One of the most devastatingly dangerous powers of sin is its power to deceive. I have no problem seeing the sin of the people around me, but I can be surprised when mine is exposed. There are so many layers in this spiritual dynamic. First, sin is a liar. It makes promises to us that it will never keep. It instills hopes in us that it cannot fulfill. It paints dreams for us that will quickly evaporate. It makes bargains with us that it will break. Sin is also deceptive because it presents as beautiful what God says is ugly. When you are on your third burger, you are not seeing the danger of gluttony. You are experiencing the pleasure of a succulent meal, dripping cheese, and that soft bun. When you are lusting after a woman, you are not seeing the destruction it is doing to your heart. You are enjoying the temporary pleasure of your fantasy. When materialism has, has you spending money that you don't have on things you don't need, you are not feeling the danger of your greed and thievery. You are taken up with the pleasure of your new possessions. Real quick, as, as Cindy's going to get ready to read these, I'm going to pose the question ahead of time. Which of the seven unmaskings of sin has been most helpful in your sanctification journey and why? So she's going to read out the, the seven unmaskings. Go ahead, Cynthia. Sin is an evil monster masquerading as your best friend. Two, sin is a slave trader masquerading as your liberator. Number three, sin is a grim reaper masquerading as a life giver. Number four, sin is the destruction masquerade is sorry. Sin is destruction masquerading as fulfillment. Five, sin is darkness masquerading as light. Six, sin is sin is foolishness masquerading as wisdom. Seven, sin is disease masquerading as a cure. Eight, sin is a trap masquerading as a gift. No matter how it presents itself to you, sin is never what it appears to be and will never deliver what it promises. So as you're pondering which of the seven was most helpful in your sanctification journey to, to, to grasp, to understand that this unmasking of sin, let me start with my own. Number two, sin is a slave trader masquerading as your liberator. I've told this story before, but as a young police officer, I thought it was okay, green light on, to use the language of the streets to convey the message that I needed conveyed in order to gain control of a situation, i.e., curse like a drunken sailor um, is the metaphor that you hear, thinking that that's the, the language of the, of, the, of the world, 
I'm dealing with the world at, the, at its most rudimentary street level, and this is the way I need to speak. So all the governing, the, I'll, take, I'll say it this way, the governor of my mouth that, I, that my mother and father had taught me, just let it go, get down to their level, and, and I've I got to be careful not to say their level, the person who's cussing at you. I'm not suggesting that streets, anybody is, is any more different than anybody else anywhere else, but the, I believed in the lie that this liberated me to communicate really communicate with these people and I understood them and they needed to understand me and what it became was a slave master of me it was very difficult um, a year and a half two years into policing when the Lord got a, get, got a hold of my heart to change that all of a sudden this swearing was wasn't just in my police life it was starting to, to overflow into uh, the personal life I had with my wife and my son and my children. They were young enough where they probably didn't understand the words, but it's just amazing. So for me, sin is a slave trader masquerading as your liberator. That was the first one as a young Christian realizing, well, oh, this thing's got me. It owns me. I thought I could turn it on and turn it off. I can't. It was really hard to work that out. So anybody else have any, any one of the seven that you look at and you go, you know what? This one was was helpful for me, or this is uh, one that I was taught in a tough season of my life. Gary? Oh, what are you going to say? Is there an eight? Yeah, there are eight. There are eight. Oh, there's eight. I'm so sorry. Yeah, right. Well, I always... Um, Don't you know, ever move your seat. I constantly need correction, Pete. Just stay right there. <laughs> I think of number one a lot because, you know, I think... Uh, the church has done us a discredit in a lot of ways because we paint Satan in this like a, a character mode that a guy with red skin and horns but is anything other than that. He's, he's the most desirable thing that our desire wants. It's beauty, it's, he's everything <coughs> which will tempt us. And I think the church over the years has just painted him as this, this character that if I saw that, okay, then I would, I would run away from it. Mm. But I don't see that. I, I see him as tempting me with Everything he knows that desire that my heart desires that is not from God. Mm. That's good. So number one. Number one, which is sin is an evil monster masquerading as your best friend, not a red-skinned, horned devil. Uh, for me, it's uh, number six. Sin is foolishness masquerading as wisdom. Uh, even some of the some of the stuff's obvious. Maybe in the you think about science and the things that are obvious pressures um, externally, but even things like work and how you complain about work. It's like I'm supposed to work unto the Lord, and yet here I am commiserating with others because I know. It gets me in good with my employees if I complain about the big boss and just stuff like that that you're like, no, this is, this is how you connect on their level and realizing, no, this isn't how God taught me to be an employee. This isn't how God taught me to be a steward. Mm. And there's just stuff like that uh, kind of all the time where you just, things that you think 
oh yeah, I'm supposed to conform. I should fit. This is the, you know, this is the wisdom. This is the knowledge. This is whatever. And it's just baseless. Um, it's just, it's foolishness. Um, but in the mind of, you know, business education or the moment or experience, you think it's wise and the right thing to do. How true, how true. There's almost a bonding. If you go down to that sins level, then you're bonding with them, then, it, then it's okay, it's good. Yeah, no. So I was looking at uh, number four. I, you know, as life goes on and it takes twists and turns that you never saw coming and you end up in places that you never knew that you're going to be and um, that number four that says sin is destruction masquerading as fulfillment. I know in my life I've had an image or, or expectations, kind of the if only, this is, this is what my life is going to look like, or this is if, if only I had X, then I would be fulfilled, mm. as opposed to saying, no, the Lord has something entirely different in store. But when I have my eyes fixed on a, a different target, and I think, well, that's, but that's fulfillment over there, not where I am, but somewhere over there. Mm. That's where fulfillment can be found. And um, the, Lord, the Lord has different plans, and sin wants to take you off course towards real, true fulfillment as opposed to what I think, my, my definition of what I think will fulfill me. Have you ever gotten in your life where you you were able to attain what the devil is masquerading as fulfillment and you had to live the difficult lie that this is no fulfillment at all. Maybe, maybe, um, or it's just enough fulfillment that then the, the goal moves. Oh, it's like, well, yeah, uh, but, okay. but, but only if there was a little more, Okay. I mean like, yeah, that's nice. And you did it, but how about a little more? Cause that's never, it's never enough. Constantly moving the goalposts. Yeah, goalposts got to move. Yeah, interesting. Sneaky deception. Mark, were you going to say something or anybody else? Okay, let's march on. Question. Oh, we already did that. Yeah. Right. Yep. All right. Sin is is deceptive because it lulls us into minimizing our transgressions. We fall into thinking our anger is inconsequential and that the little lie doesn't make much of a difference, that our gossip won't hurt anyone, and our impatience isn't a big deal, or that everyone is envious once in a while. In that endless private conversation that we have with ourselves, we are either reminding ourselves of the seriousness of sin or we are working to convince ourselves that our sin isn't that sinful after all. Because sin is deceptive and because it blinds, as long as sin still lives inside of us, spiritual blindness will also reside in all of us. The author of Hebrews addresses this sad reality. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, Hebrews three twelve and 13. This passage begins with a warning, take care. When the Bible says take care, whatever the situation or the context, that's exactly what we should do. And what, it, what is it that we should take care about? 
The answer is the deceitfulness of sin. The warning, of the, pas- the warning of the passage is followed by a description of how we are deceived by sin. Here is the process. Evil, unbelieving, falling away, hardened heart. I open my heart to things that God would call evil. Lust, anger, greed, envy, gossip, gossip etc. When I do this, my conscience bothers me, which leaves me with only two choices. I will either admit my guilt run to God and confess my wrong, or I will manufacture self-excusing arguments that make my sin look less than sinful. This is where the second step in the process comes in, unbelief. I back away from the clear indictment of God in his word, denying that what he says is true of me. I have responded to my troubled conscience with unbelief. As we're moving through this, you might be tempted to say, well, this, is, this passage is really for unbelievers because Christians can't get here. And he's helping point out that, no, this is the, the, the backsliding. Backing away from the clear moral standards of the word of God when it comes to sin happens more often than we tend to think. To mollify, that is, appease or pacify, our guilt, we convince ourselves that whatever the passage is talking about doesn't apply to us. This produces the third step in the process of deceit. Since God intends the Bible to be my moral anchor, when I become used to backing away from its judgment of my behavior, the result is always further falling away. I have cut my moral anchor rope, sending me morally adrift. The final result is a hardened heart. My heart is no longer sensitive and tender as it once was. It is no longer malleable as it once was. So what, bo- so what once bothered my conscience doesn't bother me anymore. Now let's remember the opening phrase of this passage, take care brothers. The word brothers alerts us to the fact that this passage is addressed to believers. This is written to people who really do know the Lord, who really have been rescued by his grace, redeemed by his blood, and filled with his spirit. How can a believer end up with a hardened heart? The answer of this passage is clear, the deceitfulness of sin. But examine the process again, the writer is warning us, about participating in our own deception. Yes, sometimes we are blindful, willful, or I'm sorry, blindly willful, but there are times when they are, we are willingly blind. I guess that's what it says. There's a big staple there. <laughs> <laughs> there are moments when we become participants in the deceiving of our own hearts. We participate in our own spiritual blindness when we commit the following. So there's ten of these, not seven, ten. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. Or eight, and there's definitely ten. God bless ten. you. <laughs> All right, so number one, we compare ourselves to others rather than God's word. Number two, we rewrite our history. Number three, we minimize our wrongs. Can I jump in here real quick? Yep. We could easily jump in and have a political argument and a powwow and all agree that this is what's happening in the world today and totally miss we do it too. We are deceived. It's happening in our hearts, or at least capable. Let's, con- let's continue on. 
Uh, number four, we hide our sin by putting on a good public face. Number five, we shift the blame to something or someone else. Number six, we use participation in formal religion as our defense. Number seven, we tell ourselves we'll do better next time. Number eight, we mistake biblical and theological knowledge for spiritually or spiritual maturity. Number nine, we fail to examine our hearts. And number 10, we resist the loving confrontation of others. Mm. Thank you, Stephen, for those 10 <laughs> articles that you just listed there. <laughs> now notice the call of the passage, but exhort one another every day. This is very humiliating. Our susceptibility to personal spiritual blindness is so great that we require daily intervention. We need instruments of seeing in our lives. We need one we need others we need other eyes to help us see what we cannot. Unlike a physically blind person who profoundly aware of his physical deficit Spiritually blind people are blind to their own blindness. When sin deceives, it deceives you about its deception. Hmm. You may con- be convinced that no one knows you better than you know yourself, but that's not true. When you say this, you set yourself up for resisting anyone who comes to you with something about you that you haven't already seen yourself. The truth is that as long as sin still lives inside of me, there will be troublesome inaccuracies in my view of myself. And for this, God has graciously provided the intervening mercies of the body of Christ. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. So uh, about the fourth paragraph, excuse me, fourth line in that paragraph towards the back end of that sentence of that line, there's a sentence that begins, you may be convinced that no one knows you better than yourself but that is not true. I would say there's a tension there. I would word it I I just want to bring out more, because he's he's dealing with a particular issue here and I agree with him on it, but I want to make sure I know the wickedness of my own heart you know the wickedness of your own heart better than anyone else, because we all have a tendency to hide that wickedness and whether we're dealing with it privately or we're just hiding it and not dealing with it is something we know. At the same time, there's the tension. We are self-deceived and thinking we know all the wickedness of our heart. There are, by way of community, patterns in our, in our own behaviors that if we allow people close, if we actually live in community, they will be able to see them and help us. These are the seeing eyes of others that he's referring to, that the, that the, the gospel, that the, that the writings of Christ, that the Bible shares with us. So let's, the question I pose here is, share a time when you were blind to your sin. Now, last week I asked you the question, what worked when you approached somebody else? I'm flipping it and coming at it at the different direction when somebody came to you. So share a time when you were blind to your sin. Uh, notice I put in here, choose a lesser sin or don't specifically identify, identify the sin at all. It's not necessary for this format. 
Uh, so share a time when you were blind to your sin and confronted by another believer whose intervention you were able to receive. Why were you able to receive it? Was it due to the, to the demeanor of the one confronting, the truth of the issue, the other perspective other than yours, the person's perspective, or something else? Now, as you're pondering this and you're trying to get in a, an example in your mind, there are all sorts of relationships. I mean, there's husband and wife. There's siblings. There's uh, parent to child or child to parent. There's uh, true friends, longtime friends, Christian friends that you have established uh, relationships with that can say the difficult things in, uh, and speak into your life. Um, when you're saying something that is potentially not complete in its perspective, that they're able to speak into additional information into your life. Um, anybody have an example? I don't want to, sometimes I jump in too quick with my own examples and I take the conversation somewhere where it might have gone elsewhere if I wouldn't have spoken. So PJ, I appreciate you uh, jumping in there. So the question again that PJ is going to answer is share a time when you were blind to your own, to your sin and confronted by another believer whose intervention whose intervention you were able to receive. Why were you able to receive it? Was it due to the demeanor of the one confronting, the truth of the, of the issue, the other perspectives, or something else? PJ, take it. Yeah, I, I guess I'm thinking of more the pattern of every single time it's pointed out, more than maybe one specific, but I feel like I'm reenacting the garden scene over and over, which is someone comes looking for me and I immediately in the moment do the equivalent of hiding and putting on clothes, mm. trying to cover myself up and maybe being defensive in the moment or, oh, you know, and try to protect myself from the humiliation of my sin being pointed out to me. Mm. And then the receiving of it a lot of times isn't in that moment because my pride and my sinfulness in the response to sin is wrong. And then the Holy Spirit, you know, in that moment alone after, and you're just like, yes, oh my goodness. And it falls apart. And then a text of apology to whoever it was and thanking them and then text to the others I offended. Um, and unfortunately, as far as specific examples, the list is enormous that I can think of, but it's just that desire to, even in the moment, it's, it's not that, oh, you're right. It's, I keep sin on sin and try to, no, no, you know, well, this situation, this is what they did or mm. whatever defense. And then it's later in that moment of solitude where the Holy Spirit just, you're wrong. And it's, it's just obvious. It's painful. I'm trying to figure out why I'm grumpy. Why am I grumpy? Oh, that's right. And it, you just go down that path and... Um, it's clear there was sin. So, unfortunately, I think I, I know I compound my sin with more sin uh, each time I'm, even when I'm confronted with it. Brother, thank you. That was comprehensive. I think that spoke to everyone because we all can relate to that. You're not alone in that. Well, if you're like me and been married close to 40 years, you know, I have a built-in person who is... Uh, who I trust, who will let me know when she sees something that I'm off the rail. And I, she's earned my trust and my, my, my ear for over 40 years, and uh, I just appreciate, uh, sometimes I don't want to hear it, okay, but it's the truth, and so I appreciate her a lot. Mm. 
got an example of that, Gary. I guess. Way too many. No, I have one. Oh, About my wife. No, okay. I knew that okay. was Okay. No, got it. Got it. Glenda's done that too, actually. <laughs> Glenda's done that. <laughs> Legitimately. No. Uh, uh, so many years ago, I was coaching basketball, uh, high school basketball, for, for quite a few years. And uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and you know it's it's an excitable game, yeah, and um, and so um, I would definitely I was very involved, uh, demonstrative in my coaching, and Lori pointed out to me once. She goes, "You realize that there is a certain point in the game where you cross from being excited and everything to becoming angry," mm. and she said it bears itself. She said, you can see it in the players. And mm. she said, you can see their body language change when you get angry at them instead of just being really, you know, excited about the game and, and providing uh, coaching. It, mm. it turns into, it, it changes into anger. And you can literally see it in the response of the players and their body language and what they, you know, not looking um, and things like that, and it it just hit me hard at that particular time, and I, I had to evaluate because I um, kind of like what PJ was getting at too. I was in my own mind making excuses for well, yeah, but you know this person isn't responding. They're not doing what I'm telling them to do, and then I started to evaluate, and I realized she was exactly right, and uh, had to proactively think through ahead of time and pray about those things that you know. Good, 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 thin line, bad, you know, mm. cross, whoop, mm. right over that line. So it took someone else, as Gary has noted, uh, that's close to me and loves me and willing to, to tell me, hey, um, there, there's a difference there. So. Mm. Can you give the mic to your wife? I want to ask her a question. Yeah. <laughs> so fifth, something. Fifth Amendment. He, fifth Amendment. Fifth Amendment. <laughs> So something he said um, was important, and it's one of the things that I was hoping we'd get to, and we got to it um, implicitly. And what I mean by that is um, he said that you confronted him by, by constructing it as a question. Do you realize is what you said to him? So I, I want to ask you, Lori. Is that a learned, something you learned? In other words, did you, looking back on your marriage, did you start potentially by saying, hey, you know, it would look something like this. It didn't happen this, you know, like, you're a jerk. You know, you make a statement, and then all of a sudden you guys are at each other. Or is that something that you realize you've just always done because you were taught oh, no. that some... not always done. No, okay. So, yeah. So did you find that... Did you tra- what caused you to transition to this asking format? Realizing that he would be more receptive if it was mm. just done calmly and not in the moment. Mm. Yeah. Do you realize what God did in the garden with Adam and Eve? Yeah. He asked questions. It's a biblical way of starting the process of getting the other person to see their sin, to make them realize, as PJ said, you're hiding. You're trying to, to hide your shame. You're, you're backed away. We've got to remember. God bless her. She's, she's been so patient with me. 
I deserve the, the two by four. Um, you know, the, the, hey, you're a jerk kind of thing. But it's, it's amazing when it's something that I, it's, it's almost like we, it's so basic, it's so biblical, and yet we, we think we stand in righteousness when we just let somebody have it as our first response. Don't get me wrong. The Bible talks about the, the word of God's usefulness in a rebuke or, or, or a reproofing of somebody. There are times when you gotta, you gotta bring it. But those times typically proceed, typically proceed after you've done the questioning and you've gotten the, the, the stubbornness and they now need to just be really confronted with it, with the response. That's great, that's a, that's a neat, I, Pete, you didn't know that you were gonna, to, man, you just did that perfect and Lori, thank you for getting on the mic. I know you, you're not, I, I sometimes don't want to expose, you know, not expose, so put people on the spot. That's the word I'm looking for. And you, you, I appreciate what you were able to do. All right, let's continue on with this. I was just going to say, I wanted to confess, too, like some of the brothers, that <laughs> there are innumerable times when my wife has... <laughs> Gets out of arm reach from his wife. Oh, I like that. Okay, there you go. Uh, there's, there's some, what are those called, nonverbal cues. I just want to admit. And it's not, not, not the two-by-four approach. Yeah. It's mm. the, the um, humble, godly demeanor uh, with truth, truth-telling that mm. I just mentioned there. And yeah. it comes to me, and I need it. Amen. Amen. Okay, where are we at now? Uh, I see. I think it's changed. Yeah. We're on the, the uh, paragraph right after that question. Is that where we are? Yeah, your, okay. your biggest problem. <laughs> your biggest problem. Okay. Not that it's just your biggest problem. <laughs> <laughs> your biggest problem. <laughs> uh. Your biggest problem in life is not your spouse, neighbor, friend, parent, children, church, culture, government, physical disease, financial stress, boss, fellow workers, godless professor, or seductive media. Your biggest problem lives inside of you. It is remaining sin with its power to deceive. But your Savior hasn't left you alone. He has given you his insight-giving word. He has given you his convicting and empowering spirit. And he has surrounded you and his church with instruments of seeing. Open your heart to his gracious provisions so that you'll have a defense against the blinding power of sin. It happened rather innocently one afternoon. Sam was 27 years old and committed himself to a life of sec living a sexually pure life. He was doing some internet research when he happened upon a website presenting nearly naked women using gym equipment. Sam immediately shut the site, shut down the site and quit his search, but he couldn't get those women out of his mind. With heart pounding the next night in his apartment alone, he went, he went searching for the site and spent an hour looking at images he had no business seeing. But before long, he was looking every day and looking for sites that offered a bigger sexual buzz. As months went by, Sam was hooked and deeper and darker forms of pornography, progressively needing more and more graphic material to satisfy his hunger. It became a more, 
more and more impossible for Sam to be alone with his laptop without ending up on yet another pornographic site. Sam was no longer in control of his sexual desire, and he was under, he was under control. He was an addict. He was hooked. He was enslaved. The guilt and shame kept Sam hiding his addiction and made him lie to himself about how enslaved he actually was. Sam had tried to control what he could not control, and his sin was eating up more of his heart and controlling more and more of his life. Mm. Now the flip. Now we look at it, this as an example in a woman's life. Um, Andrea was an accountant for a moderately sized family business. She loved her job, and her employees loved her. Andrea's bosses entrusted the financial books to her and didn't ask many questions. One week when Andrea was hit with, her, uh, hit with unexpected bills and struggling to make it to the next paycheck, she thought of a way to get through. She decided to give herself $100 from petty cash, write her firm an IOU, and put it in her desk drawer. She knew that no one would know, and that she would replace it when she got paid. Um, Andrea did replace that first loan, but she realized how easy it had been. The next time it was $500 and there was no IOU. Andrea told herself she'd remember and pay it back, but she didn't. As the months went on uh, again and again, when Andrea needed or wanted something out of the ordinary, she'd take um, some money out of the petty cash or write a reimbursement check to herself. Andrea had not only become a thief, she was also addicted. When her boss finally examined the books, he discovered that Andrea, his trusted employee, had embezzled thousands of dollars from him. Sadly, throughout the process, Andrea never thought of herself as a thief, repeatedly told herself that she would pay her bosses back, always told herself this time would be the last time, and denied that she was addicted. One aspect of our struggles with sin is that we don't talk about it enough is the power of sin to enslave. The enslaving power of sin is why we seek and celebrate the liberating power of divine grace. Amen. As we have seen already, sin is more than a bad thing you do. It is a master. And if you welcome it into your life, it has the dark power to enslave you. Somehow, some way, sin turns us all into addicts. The only difference between us and is the object of our, of our addiction. Hear the words of Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. John 8, verse 34. Or hear the words of Paul. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Romans six sixteen. Or consider these words from Proverbs. The iniquities of the wicked wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. Proverbs 5.22. Sin is not just attractive, presenting as beautiful what God says is ugly, but sin is also addictive. The pleasures of sin pass quickly, but its mastery over you remains. Mm. Part of the addicting power of sin is its noetic effects. That is, sin distorts our thinking. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Romans 1.21 Sin also distorts and redirects our desires. 
the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6, 5. The result is that people loved the darkness rather than the light because, of their, work, because their works were evil. John 3, 19. The ultimate foolishness of sin's distorted thinking is the denial of the existence of God. This may not be a philosophical or theological denial, but rather living as if God doesn't exist. If you live as if God, exi- God doesn't exist, then you look for life in the people, places, things, and experiences of this right here, right now world. So if you are susceptible to believing sin's lies and embracing its false promises, you buy into thinking that something outside of God will satisfy the longings of your heart. You are on your way to addiction, enslavement to sin. So I'm going to make this a rhetorical question so that we are certainly done by quarter tell so we can greet anybody who's visiting us because it's Christmas. Um, so the, I'm going to, again, the, the question now rhetorical is this, and I, I've added a word to give it a, a little more uh, correctness to it. What general factors in your life can wrongly lead you to living in the right here, right now world? In other words... How does the right here, right now world make you distracted from seeing the truth of how you're being deceived? That's what you need to to ponder. Sometimes the immediate takes you off the track of the eternal, that which God is doing to sanctify you. So you need to recognize that constantly dealing only in the immediate will make you blind, will deceive you in thinking you're doing the right things within your day. Yes, you need to take care of the immediate, but you need to take care of the immediate with the mindset of the eternal. How is God using the immediate to bring sanctification into my life? I'm constantly being sanctified, or I'm constantly, I'll say it this way, have the opportunity of being sanctified. Where am I deceiving myself that this is too urgent, this is too, this requires too much of my my thinking process that I overlook it as an opportunity to be sanctified. So let's continue on, finish with those last two paragraphs, and then I'll end with those five rhetorical questions. Because, because sin presents this beautiful, which God calls ugly, and because it does give you a momentary pleasure, you reach out for what God forbids. But the pleasure quickly fades. So you reach out again, hungry for more because created things have no ability to satisfy your heart. Each time you reach out for more, you need more to achieve of the pleasure you are craving. Rather, it's gluttony, pornography, materialism, gossip, thievery, the idols of power and control, or the lust for Lust for um, appreciation and success. What temporarily just keeps, uh, satisfies you uh, yesterday doesn't do it so today. So you have to have more and more. You want more, and you want it more quickly. And before long, you can't stop thinking about the object of your sinful craving. It occupies much more of the thinking and desires of your heart than anything should. What you once um, were 
uh, convinced was har- uh, harmless and under your control now controls you and is beginning to rob you of important things in your heart and life. You are addicted to what God has forbidden, but you will do your best to convince yourself that you're not. Sin is never harmless. It is a cruel slave master out to kidnap your heart and control your life. Mm. The addicting, enslaving power of sin should make sure, make each of us thankful for the power of the Messiah, Jesus, to proclaim beauty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. He is our only hope to escape from the bondage inducing power and sin. Stop not right now and personally examine where you are experiencing the controlling power of sin in your life. And those four questions that we can ponder as I read them and then we'll go into, we'll close in five. What is wrong with me, Nicholas? It's the antibiotics. I'm just a little off. Yeah, that sounds like deflection, doesn't it? How about I'm just off? Uh, Where are you finding it hard to say no? Where are there desires that are a bit out of control? Where are you minimizing sin's power over you? Is there any place where you have a secret life, behaviors that you hide and patterns that you deny to yourself and others? Do you need to run to your Savior for his bondage-breaking grace? He is able and he is willing, and he will not turn you away. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Father, that you never turn us away. Thank you by the work and power of your Son, Jesus Christ. You have made that grace possible to us through a person. And that person is the Holy Spirit. It's not an it. It's not a force. It's one of the persons of the Trinity that has been made possible to dwell, that he has been made possible to dwell in us because of your plan and your son's completion of that plan. And we thank you. We don't overlook it. We don't want to grieve the Spirit. We don't want to quench his work that he is doing in and through us and sanctifying us. Please, Father, remind us of this beautiful journey that you have us on, that we walk because we want to walk hand in hand with you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.